this morning is a little bit of an excursus. And you think, what, what, what did you say? Excursus. An excursus is a technical term for a rabbit trail. A rabbit trail from our study Friday night. Friday we had an excellent time and the Messiah in the Passover Seder. And I don't have any prizes to hand out this morning, so don't ask about that. But so anyway, but we do have kind of a carryover or an overflow from different things that I've been thinking about the last uh, few weeks. And we're going to start, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures this morning, trying to tie some things together and try to explain this idea. How can, as the scripture says, how can God be just and the justifier? How can God be just and the justifier? And that's not just a sermon title, that comes from scripture. Romans 3 and verse 25 mentions this verse Here it is. I'm going to have the scripture references at least on the screen so you can kind of keep up. I may skim, skip over some, but also add some other ones. Who knows? I don't always have the text on there. So, but at least you can see the the reference there before us. And Romans 3 and verse 25, and we'll come back and look at more of the passage here. But I just want to focus on that phrase so that he, this is God, God the Father, would be just and the justifier. How can this be? How could God be just, the one who is right, the one who has justice, the one who has Um, perfect righteousness, perfect uh, wrath even in that regard, but also be be the one who is able to make guilty, no doubt guilty, treacherous, traitorous people. How can he, being just, also make people just? How can God make people right? If he is just, then shouldn't he just act in wrath all the time? And this really also flows right into our conversation in Job and what all the things have been going on there with God's justice and does God's justice sleep and is God somehow arbitrary in his execution of justice and and how does this all work together? Well, this comes back or flows out of our text back in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, if you don't mind, if you want to keep a finger back in Romans, we'll turn there later, but we'll look in some other passages here. Exodus 12, we looked at rather carefully on Friday night with the Passover, the first Passover. And that is telling us about God's intention to be both just and the justifier. And so we read in Exodus 12 and verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We see several things, several promises that God makes here, and most of them are in, well, I guess we see a combination of the just and justifier uh, elements or, or factors or characteristics of who God is. He says he's going to go through the land of Egypt. He's going to go in a, in a justice, wrathful way. And if we had time, we'd look back in the previous chapter, chapter 11, even earlier in Exodus. He said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he even said, let my firstborn go. Israel is my firstborn. That's why God focused on the firstborn here in, in Exodus 12, because Israel, God said that, that people is my firstborn and I'm going to strike your firstborn because you would not obey me and honor me by letting my people go. So God said, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt and I will strike down. I'm going to destroy. And who does he say? All the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and the larger perspective, the gods of Egypt. He's going to execute judgments, just embarrass them, shame them, uh, expose the, the false gods of Egypt as being false gods. They can't do anything. They're just made up entities uh, trying to explain natural phenomenon and stuff. But God himself is the God, and he is able to exercise his authority over the river, over the beasts, over the weather, over the crops, over the, even the, the flesh of the, of the skin, even over uh, children. God is executing judgments. He's proving himself, I am Yahweh, as it says in verse 12. But then he's a justifier. You see in verse 13, this blood, and we, we could read earlier in chapter 12 about this blood from the lamb, year old male lamb that's perfect and blameless and without blemish and so forth. The blood shall be a sign for you on houses where you are. The blood that they took put on the, on the doorpost and on the lintel across. I, God says, I, Yahweh, will see the blood and I will pass over you and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is coming as a just God, going to execute judgment and going to do these things. A little bit later in chapter 12, verse 23, he says, Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians and he will see the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts and Yahweh will pass over the doorway, will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Now, that verse right there, even that last little phrase, he will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. That was where I thought this morning's lesson was going to go toward this idea. Who is the destroyer? Because it seems like the whole context is God is going to come and bring judgment. He's going to be the smiter. He's going to be the one to strike Egypt. And yet he says, I'm not going to let the destroyer, not going to allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Well, wait a minute. So who is this destroyer? Sometimes we hear the phrase, the death angel. The death angel was coming to to bring death. Well, that phrase isn't used anywhere in this context. The closest we get to it is that phrase right here, the destroyer. So who is this destroyer? Suffice it to say, and there's much more all around it, the angel of Yahweh described throughout scripture, or the angel of God, or sometimes referred to as my angel, or his angel, or... I guess those are the predominant names or titles attributed to him, is so closely associated with Yahweh, but also distinct. And so when it says here, Yahweh is going to come and smite, but it's the destroyer going to smite or strike. Well, who is it then? Is it God, Yahweh, God the Father? Is it this angel of the Lord? And one other thing about the angel of the Lord, he's not a created being. We look at different things. When we see him in Scripture talking to Gideon, talking to uh, Manoah and his wife, or really the wife first and then Manoah, or other people, he is presenting himself as Yahweh. And so what am I saying? What am I trying to get across here? That this destroyer is God himself in the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh. And what is this saying? This is suggesting that God is both one and three. Now we have two here, with Holy Spirit would be another indication from other sources, but here we're, we're seeing a, a unity and yet a distinction between the persons of the triune Godhead. And God the Father is there standing at the door, and he will not allow, as it says there in verse 23, not allow the destroyer, the one who brings destruction, to come into your houses to smite you. 
little bit later, verse 27, another explanation. How do we explain this whole idea? What is this all about? It is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but delivered our homes. So we see the combination. He is the just and the justifier. He is just when he smote the Egyptians because of their wickedness, their disobedience, their rebellion against God, but also justifying his people Israel. A couple verses later, verse 29, it happened at midnight that all this stuff happened. Yahweh did strike all the firstborn land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. God is the one who strikes and who destroys and exercises judgment. He is just in these regards. And I've forgotten to give you these, these scriptures. We looked at verse 23. We looked at verse 27, verse 29. We turn now to another passage. This is to show how God is the one destroying, but it's also the angel of the Lord. This is a, a parallel passage, 2 Samuel, at the very end of the book, 2 Samuel 24. David had, just like he did, just like we do, had sinned against the Lord, and God had sent a judgment against him. 2 Samuel 24, remember that account where God gave an, op- an option of three different calamities that could befall him, and he chose not to fall into the hands of people because they won't show any mercy, but to fall into the hands of God because he will have compassion and mercy. And so in verse 15, we see that God, in his judgment, in God being a just God, also was a justifier. Yahweh, verse 15, 2 Samuel 24, Yahweh sent a pestilence against Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Then the angel... What is this angel? This angel that we've seen before, and we'll see in Second or First Chronicles how this is spelled out. But the angel sent forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, and Yahweh relented of the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, "It's enough." Oh, there's that word "die," right? Enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing, or was by the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite. And David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned and it's I who have done unrighteousness. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. You can read the rest of that text and realize that God is in the business right then of justifying not just David and his house, but all the people, because at that point he establishes this place, this threshing floor of Aravna or Arana or uh, different spellings of his name, uh, as the place for the temple to be built. The first temple that, that David got all the pieces for, and then Solomon was then put it all together. And, and that is the place. This is how that whole event came to be. That place for redemption, for forgiveness, of, of justification, is through even this, this calamity, this wickedness that David had done by taking a census of the people. But we see Yahweh again as distinguished from the angel of Yahweh and how they are working together and yet separately or distinctly to fulfill the purpose, all the counsel of Yahweh. If we turn to, the, again, the similar passage in First Chronicles 21, we see very similar things. Um, in fact, I think I read, no, I read, yeah, First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 12 is the options that God gave. Take for yourself either three years of famine, three months to be swept away, or uh, three days of the sword of Yahweh, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of Yahweh destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. And so we can see how that went to be. 
And even verse 16, David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven with his sword drawn and his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And they fell on their faces, covered with sackcloth, David and all the elders. And, and then he confesses his sin before God. And the angel of Yahweh said to Gad, Gad, verse 18, is the prophet, prophet Gad, who says to David, hey, build an altar. And that's where the, the temple was built. Again, we see God being just, but God being wrathful, but also the God who is merciful and kind and just and forgiving of his people. Hebrews 11, verse 28, reflects on that first Passover, not this event <laughs> we've been reading in Second Samuel and First Chronicles, but the Passover, the first event. By faith, Moses, it's speaking of, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. This, the, that phrase, he who destroyed, is, I think that's the only time that that phrase is used in all the scriptures. And it refers to that phrase back in Exodus 12, the destroyer, that God says, don't come in this house, stop it. And by the sprinkling of the blood, that destroyer would not come in and touch the firstborn of the nation of Israel. Again, it says, Psalm 78, verse 51, God, Yahweh, struck all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their vigor in the tents of Ham. Now, this, again, this idea of just and justifier, the one who is righteously wrathful, just in his execution of what is right and wrong, punishing evildoers and, and rewarding those who do good, but also the one who doesn't excuse sin, doesn't it doesn't just say, oh, it's okay, you didn't, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, you didn't, God is not just excusing sin. He is the one who, who takes it and puts it on his son. He said, son, you carry this because I'm going to let that transgressor go free. And guess what? Jesus did that. He did suffer in our place. He is the one that became sin for us so that we could be justified, declared righteous, and in the course of time made righteous so that our Eternal position in Christ would also be matched by our daily practice and always living for God's glory. And interesting, this is kind of a, another sub-rabbit trail of, of the previous rabbit trails, is that where in the world did the idea of Passover, that we kind of have the idea of passing over something, come from? Because it kind of jumps right into the idea of, okay, he, he's passing over the the people that he chosen by the blood on the on the doorposts and on the lintel, and yet he is he's just to the Egyptians. It, you trace it right back. A lot of times when you're okay, so you're translating from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew but a little bit different. And you're translating. A lot of times the words are translated from one language to another. So. Uh, just uh, it's a different word in our English language than that. Sometimes words are transliterated. Transliterated means we're using we're, we're we're saying the same word but we're using English letters for it. So, for example, Sabbath, Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew, we pronounce it a little bit different, but we spell it the same. It's the same thing. We could say uh, the last or the seventh day or something like that. So, the difference between a translation versus a transliteration. When William Tyndale, this goes back about 500 years, okay, you with me? About 500 years ago, William Tyndale was translating the scriptures into English. It had been done before, right? John Wycliffe had translated maybe 60, 70 years before that time. And there had been other ones as well through that course of time. But there wasn't, so when Wycliffe translated, especially this word Passover, well, which we have the word as Passover, Pesach, remember in Hebrew, 
is that word. When he was translating, he basically transliterated it. He says, I don't, there's not a, a, an adequate term in English to convey what that word is, is doing. So he used a kind of a, a transliteration. Kind of like we mentioned the other pilgrim priests, right? There are three of them. Uh, Sukkot, we mentioned Sukkot in Hebrew means booths or little temporary dwellings. And so we see a transliteration versus a translation. But he said, now we're going to use this word uh, pasha or, or something like that. And Tyndale, when he was doing it, he says, now let's, let's think of a, let's make a different word for this whole thing. And so William Tyndale's translation introduced this phrase. This is, oh, this is William Tyndale's translation from about 1530. Uh, in the year of our Lord. And I'll kind of translate it for you. I'll read it for you. It's spelled in the, well, it's not spelled the same way, but you can read it the same way. For I will go about in the land of Egypt that same night and will smite all the firstborn land of Egypt, both of man and beast, and upon all the gods of Egypt will I do, will I the Lord do execution. Now here in verse 13, we see, and the blood shall be unto you a, um, a token upon the houses wherein ye are, for when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague will shall not be upon you, destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So we see that phrase right there, I will pass over you. And so in our minds, we think, okay, that's passing over. God is, is, is going throughout all the land of Egypt, and he's, he's skipping over the house of, of his Israelites. Which, okay, that, that could be what, what is going on there. But the issue is, though, that again, this is a, a new word that, Tyndale introduced, 1530, thereabouts, he translated, published his Old Testament translation, and he introduced or coined this phrase. Again, not to get too deep into the woods here, I think, and other things could, could testify to this, that he was using, and I'm sorry, I'm just getting really technical, he was using the Latin translation of the Old Testament at this point. The Latin translation, as opposed to the Hebrew or even the Greek translation, a Greek Septuagint, you know this, Sorry, I'm getting really technical. But the Vulgate, the Latin translation, was translated about late 300s by Jerome in Jerusalem. And he used the same word in Latin to describe that phrase back in verse 12. I will go about, in the land of Egypt, I will go about that verb right there. He used that, he trans, it's a different verb in Hebrew, but the same verb in Latin in verse 12 that he used in verse 13, I will pass over you has the idea of movement, has the idea of, of kind of, uh, uh, well, a transfer of, of uh, motion in, in that regard. And I think that was wrong. I think that translation Jerome introduced was wrong, and I think Tyndale followed that and introduced the idea of, uh, of uh, a movement or a maneuver around or over or, or somehow surrounding the houses of the Israelite people. Why do I think it's wrong? Because other translations, the Greek translation, has a different uh, verb here. I will pass over you. has the idea of defending, protecting, even covering. In fact, some people think the, the word Pesach in Hebrew is coming from an Egyptian term that has to do with uh, covering over uh, something to protect or to, um, to clothe even, it's mentioned. <coughs> And so in Tyndale, I think he, praise God for him, thank God for him, and yet I think he introduced some confusion with this word. It's kind of like, why didn't we just baptize, what, baptism? Why didn't we just translate that as immerse rather than transliterate it, right? Because baptism, what is that about? Well, if you say that's immersion or that's dunking, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to do it. It just, translation work is very tricky, but it's also very critical how we do these things. 
Another, another example of this phrase, this word Pesach in the verb form, and again, I'm sorry, it's very technical. Isaiah 31 and verse, verses 4 and 5. This is God, the Father, Yahweh, speaking to his people Israel. It's the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, about 700 B.C., and Assyria, this massive kingdom, was coming against them. It already carried off the northern kingdom, right? All of, from basically the top of the Dead Sea northward, all those people carried off and scattered among the nations. Well, now Assyria is knocking on the door of Jerusalem, and God says, don't worry about them. I'll I'll take care of them. Isaiah 31, verses 4 and 5. As the, long, as the lion or the young lion growls over its prey, against which a multitude of shepherds is called out, and will not be dismayed at their voice, nor afflicted at their noise, so will Yahweh of hosts come down. Yahweh of armies is that translation. He's, he's the military leader. He will come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill, not against his people, but against the Assyrians, the people who are coming against his people. Like flying birds, so Yahweh of hosts will defend Jerusalem. He will defend it and deliver it. He will pass over and provide a way of escape. That word Passover is our word Pesach, and that is the word translated back in Hebrews 12 and verse 13 about Passover. He will pass over the houses. But notice, again, this is a lesson on Hebrew parallelism. Those two last lines there, he will defend and deliver it. He will pass over and provide a way of escape. Defend and pass over are parallel ideas. Deliver and provide a way of escape are also parallel ideas. So, wait a minute, is passing over then the same idea as defending? If somebody is skipping over, is that the same as, as you know, standing guard over it? No, it's not the same. It, it really ought to be translated defend or protect or shelter, the idea. Being delivered is to having, having a way of escape. And a little bit later, you can, I'll just mention the reference so I won't look to the passage, but God says the fulfillment of that is, I will defend this city, I will stand guard in this city, And it happened that night that the angel of Yahweh, again, there's that idea, God himself doing it, because God said, Yahweh said, I'm going to defend, but then the angel of Yahweh went out to actually do the defending. What happened? The angel of Yahweh went out and struck. He struck. Same word that we'd see back in Exodus 12 when Yahweh went out to strike the land of Egypt. He went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians and the King James translation on this last little bit. When all the men rose up early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. You think, wait a minute, they woke up dead? No. The people who woke up around them said, hey, look at all those 185,000 Assyrians. They're all dead out there. That was the army that was coming against Jerusalem to destroy us, and God destroyed them. How did he do that? Because he's God, he can do it. He's the Yahweh of armies. So again, coming back, way back to it, that we, we recognize that God is the defender. He is the one who is the justifier. He's just. He executed all these Assyrians because they're coming against his people, and his people, Hezekiah, confessed their sins before God and drew near to him. But God is both just and the justifier. And we see even the, the different persons of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, working in tandem to accomplish this great and good purpose. Well, the question is, how can, how can this be? How can God be just and the justifier of those, uh, of anybody? If he's just toward those who are unrighteous and wicked and sinners, but how can he be the justifier? Wouldn't that be like excusing sin? Wouldn't that somehow be, oh, God, you're, you're somehow not righteous in this regard? Well, we have read and we've celebrated a lot in the last well, especially since Friday night, that God provided a lamb. God provided a sacrifice so that the people of Israel could be protected in that regard, protected from the destroyer. 
God is both the just and justifier because he provided a lamb, but he also provided our Lord Jesus Christ. If we turn back to that, Exodus 12 is what we looked at before. If we turn back to Romans 3, we see that, okay, the whole thing here, that God is both just and the justifier. Well, how, does, how can that be? Because God is just. He can't just put his, his righteousness on the shelf and somehow say, oh, it, it, it's okay. Never mind. It's okay. No, something has to suffer. Something has to be punished in the place of that sinner. If that, if, if, if that sinner is going to be justified, somebody's going to have to pay that penalty. Somebody's going to have to pay that price. And so we see in Romans 3 and verse 25, talking about the Lord Jesus, God the Father displayed God the Son publicly as a propitiation. A propitiation is a satisfying sacrifice. It has the direction toward God. It's, it's, it's satisfying the wrath of God. So it's pro or, or toward God. And it's a propitiation, a satisfying sacrifice in his blood. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It is a propitiation accomplished or purchased because of his blood and applied to us through faith. So how can God be the just be just and the justifier because Christ died for us. He bore God's wrath. He satisfied the, the requirements of God's righteousness. Now, and this kind of comes back into our study in Job a little bit, that next phrase, verse 25, says, for a demonstration of his righteousness. You think, what's, what's the, what's, why is God demonstrating or proving or, or, or um, witnessing against or toward his righteousness? Well, because... God has not punished everybody according to their sins. God is so merciful and he's so patient with people. It says here in verse 25, because in the forbearance of God, and this is this idea right here, it's the only, word, only time where that word is used. Forbearance uh, um, has to do with standing aside of or, or overlooking, another way to, look, to overlook sins. And that's where we get the idea, oh, God was passing over. He was overlooking the houses of Israel. It's not the same idea. There, God was protecting. He was standing guard over the house of Israel. Here, he is passing over. He's ignoring. He's not taking record of those wrongs that are, are being uh, accomplished by his people, by anybody, really. And even saying that, asterisk, big asterisk, he does keep a record of wrongs, right? In Psalm 132, uh, was that the one? If you, Lord, should keep a record of wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. He does keep a record of wrongs. There are books that he's going to open in that end day when all of, our, all of the unrighteous acts are going to be accounted against people. But in the course of time, he has overlooked so much. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't forgiven them. He's just passed over them. He hasn't given everybody exactly what they deserve. And you think, that causes some problems for us. God, why aren't you bringing judgment upon those evildoers? God, knock their teeth out. God, shut them down. He will. We can trust in that. We can rest in that knowledge that God is just. But he's also a patient, kind, justifying, redeeming God for those who would humble themselves before him. And so we see that God is the one who is justifying people through the blood of the Lamb, as John the Baptist said, John 1, uh, two times in that, in that passage, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how our sin problem is dealt with. And even from that beginning, right, this is, this is John at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or prior to that, 
He said why Jesus came, to take away the sin. Did John say Jesus came because he's going to give us deliverance over our Roman oppressors and we're going to rise up and cast out Rome from our blessed uh, land? No, Jesus came to take away sin. Jesus came to bear the sin of the world. And of course, John, or excuse me, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was also was sacrificed. He offered himself for our expiation. So there's propitiation toward God. There's expiation toward us. We've been forgiven. That, that wrath that was due us, it's gone. It's, for, it's, it's removed from us. And so we have this tremendous, tremendous redemption that we can uh, walk in newness of life because of what Christ has done for us. This other passage I read Friday night, First Peter 1 and verse 17, talks about the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. How can, how can a treacherous, traitorous person like me in my previous life be reconciled to God? Because Jesus died in my place. The wages of sin is death. The wage, don't, don't doubt that at all. If you sin, the soul that sh- sins shall surely die. But... For those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his death is counted as my death. Jesus died, so I don't have to die. And it's not just, you know, like we had beautiful little lambs outside Friday night. It's not that, I mean, as beautiful as they are, not going to cut it. It's not satisfying God. It's not going to fulfill his righteous requirement. We needed a Savior, a man, Christ Jesus, who died in our place. And that is what we see. In Revelation 5, I won't read it, uh, talking about the lamb, worthy is the lamb that was slain. This is, it's not just a lamb to live and then to die a natural death. No, he was killed. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was, his, his blood was spilled on the ground for our, our sake, and we can have life in his name. Well, how can a sinner be justified? If we go back to Romans 3, that we see these different expressions of how does a, a rightly condemned person come into life? Well, a few examples. This righteousness of God comes by faith. Verse 22, Romans 3.22. Comes the righteousness of God, the, the justification of God, the standing before God of being not a sinner, not condemned, but now accepted in the beloved. Now we have this righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. And for all those who believe, it talks about the contrast between Jew and Gentile and so forth that he is really pervades Romans, but he also says that we have this gift, this justification is a gift of God, it's not something that we earned. What we would get by earning, by our, our just, you know, if, if God were fair, it would not turn out well for us. We would get exactly what we deserve, which is death, destruction, damnation, separation from God. But being justified as a gift, you don't deserve it, it's not your birthday, anything like that, may give you a gift a gift by his grace. It's not in his judgment. It is in his grace, giving us what we don't deserve, giving us himself through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And then it says um, in verse, at the end of verse 26, God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who has faith, the one who trusts in Jesus. Now, don't think, oh, all I have to do is believe in Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus, right? Historical figure and good moral example and teacher and kind of weird sometimes, but hey, he's pretty cool. It's not that kind of faith. It's the faith that says he is my life and I look to no one else. There's no one else that can bring me life, bring me that propitiation, a satisfying sacrifice, any kind of standing of righteousness before God. The one who in himself 
paid my penalty so that I can be forgiven. There's nobody else that can do that. I can't do that myself. I'm not good enough. Could never be good enough. Could never not do enough bad things, if you don't mind the double negative, and could never do enough good things to please God. Never, never, never. But Christ is the one who did these things. And so Christ is the one who can justify us, can bring us before him as holy and spotless and without blame or reproach. Now the question is, again, kind of bringing some of these loose ends together, we have God the Father acting in judgment, but also in mercy, in justifyingness, if you don't mind the the phrase. We also see Yahweh, the Son, or the angel of Yahweh, acting in judgment a lot. And we think, wait a minute, Jesus, if that is a, and I didn't mention this perhaps, I guess I did, that if this angel of Yahweh is both identified with Yahweh, but also distinct from acting in, in cooperation with, but also doing his own thing so that God the Father can even stand in, in the pathway, you know, guard the houses so the destroyer could not come in, then wait a minute. I thought Jesus was, you know, tender and merciful and mild and did not bring condemnation. You know, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but through the world that I might save the world and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. That's what he's doing now. He is saving people. But there's a time coming when those who are not justified, when those who are clothed in their own unrighteousness are going to receive the just rewards for their disobedience. What will Christ, the angel of Yahweh, if you don't mind, do to those who are not justified? Hebrews 3. Oh, so this is an interesting idea. You remember those firstborn that were saved back from the firstborn of Israel that were saved by the blood, the lamb of, of you know, the, the Passover lamb that was slain and the blood was, and, and God either, you know, passed over but defended the houses of his people? What happened to all those people? They died in the wilderness. I think, well, that's not fair. They should have lived. No, no. With the exception, possible exception, because I don't know what all their genealogy and so forth, Caleb and Joshua were the only two people of all that generation that came out of Egypt, the only two people to enter the promised land. Everybody else died in the wilderness. Whoa, that is a serious judgment because God's not kidding around. Just because you're, you're covered in this blood. Now, do you believe in this thing? Do you trust me? Do you have faith in the Son? Do you think that you're doing fine? And even all the grumbling going on. I mentioned, here it is, Hebrews 3. I'm not going to, whoops, I'm not going to turn to that passage because the key idea there is they, that generation that came out of Egypt, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They did not believe God. They did not rejoice in God. They did not trust God. They certainly didn't obey God. They, they liked all the, the gifts of manna and the not and their shoes not wearing out and all that stuff in the pillar. That was pretty cool, that pillar of cloud and stuff and pillar of fire. That was, that was nice. But they didn't believe God. They grumbled against him, found fault with him, you know, made all of God's, God's fault. Moses, why'd you do this? We want to go back to Egypt. And they could not enter the promised land because of unbelief. First or Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5 talks about the judgment. God's righteous judgment that is coming upon creation. And verse 8 says that God, or excuse me, that the Lord Jesus, which who is God, of course, at the revelation of Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing judgment or vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, I thought you're just supposed to believe the gospel, right? Believe, you're supposed to obey it. Obey the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that we believe in the Son, but also forsake sin. Again, our man Job, he 
feared God, he trusted God, obeyed him, all these wonderful things, and turned away from sin. So what is it to deal with obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ here? It's recognizing he alone is life. There's no other solution, no other, no other um, supply. There's no other way we can find life. And we say, well, I don't, I don't really like that whole thing that Jesus is doing. He's putting too many demands upon my life. Or he, he just asked too much. You know, deny yourself, take up your... I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? Because that's the way to life. You deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and then you will have life. You don't obey that? Well, you can have the certainty that he will bring vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's a very similar thing as mentioned in 2 Timothy 4. I happen to have the verse here. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the... Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the Savior. I thought he was the one who's going to just be grace, 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 grace. Yes, right now. But in that day when he comes to judge, he's going to judge. And he doesn't judge based on appearances. He doesn't judge based on, oh, I, I know you. Come on in. I, I, yeah, you've got some issues, but I know you. And th- so there's partiality with God? No. There's no partiality with God. He's going to judge righteously, perfectly, and finally the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. So what should we do? Preach the word. Get that word out there because in the word of God is salvation. Here in the gospel is how people come to faith. 1 Peter 4 and verse 17 says, It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God is judging in that idea with the household of God, not that we're somehow, oh, I don't know if we're saved or not. Well, if we're in Christ and we're forsaking sin and growing in Him, if we cling to Christ, then we can be confident and assured of our salvation. But So His judgment upon us is not for the... The penalty, you know, I don't know if you're in the kingdom or not. No, it's, it's what kind of rewards do you have? And why are you, why are you chasing after that foolishness over there when you can have me, uh, the fountain of living waters, and, and you can have me as your sufficiency? God disciplines us, as Elihu was helping us understand, for our sanctification, to, to grow in Christ. But if, if God is pruning, as Jesus said in John 15, if God is pruning the the branches of the church, how much more is, is going to do stuff for those who do not obey the gospel? Well, Revelation 19. I won't read the whole passage, but we see the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. When heaven is opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Oh, but he came so nicely that previous day. He's a little baby, and it was so cute, and all the shepherds and the angels, and, and the, oh, those magi. The, yeah. That was for them. This is now he's coming to judge and wage war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him, which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And there were armies, big, massive armies, verse 14 says, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They were following him on white horses. Who had the weapon? Jesus had the weapon. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. Skip down to verse 21. It says that, well, back up a couple verses. It says that Jesus had the beast and the false prophet, verse 20, seized and and thrown into the uh, lake of fire, thrown alive in the lake of fire. Verse 21 says, the rest, all those who were gathered against Jesus to wage war against him, the rest were killed with that massive army that was following Jesus because, you know, Jesus had, he needed help. No, the rest, 
everybody else. Remember the 185,000 Assyrian mighty men that he just wiped out in the course of a night? No problem. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. Wow. Talk about a mighty warrior. He spoke and they were dead. He spoke and everything was created. It's not like he doesn't have that power. This is Christ, our Lord Christ, who has that power of judging those who refuse to bow, obey and bow before the gospel and to love God and forsake sin and, and walk righteously before him. Is there any hope that we have? What should we do? What should we do? Well, there's an answer. We'll conclude with this. Psalm 2 at the very end. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Earth, Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the gift of righteousness, the gift of life. We don't deserve it. We deserve death and judgment and un... un uh, well, just being concealed in our unrighteousness, and yet you in your mercy and grace offer salvation so freely as a gift to those who would humble themselves, confess their sin, say, I don't want that in my life anymore. I know that is leading me to death and hell and to find life, to cry out with the pilgrim from Pilgrim's Progress, life, life, eternal life, and to find that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to honor him especially today, of course, but every day. We want to live for his honor and glory. We want to celebrate him and see his life made more perfect, made more um, obvious in our choices and words and actions and attitudes and all the things of our life. We thank you for your forbearance. You are so patient passing over and, and being so generous toward those who hate you, spit on you, mock you, who crucified the Son. You are the one who is so gracious and your kindness should lead us to repentance. But we pray for that day when Christ would come in his glory, in the glory of his Father and all the angels, and he would bring judgment upon this earth. We hate even those who hate you. Now that's hard words perhaps, but that's what you say. You hate those who hate your son. You say, kiss the son, lest he become angry and his wrath be kindled. Please save and sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.